Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Business Black Belts. I am super excited today to have my friend, uh, one of my customers, someone who advises me, Jackie Russo, on the show. Jackie, thank you so much for making some time. Thanks for having me, Miles. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So there's a lot I want to unpack today. Uh, As a fellow agency owner, uh, you've been doing a lot longer than me, so I'm so excited to ask you a bunch of questions, but I thought we'd start with an easy one. Uh, I know you've got a pretty interesting personal and professional story, but in your own words, how would you describe Jackie Russo? Um, wife, mother, accidental entrepreneur, brander, speaker, author, tired. <laughs> I love tired. And he, what's the Ragin' Cajuns? Uh, big sports fan. Big sports fan. Um, the University of Louisiana Ragin' Cajuns. Go Cajuns. Uh, we have baseball game tonight, so I'm always wearing the gear whenever it's game day. Now, what's your favorite sport? Is it, is it baseball or I know football's big for you too. I love football, but baseball is my heart. I mean, I was when I was in college, I was going to baseball games. I grew up watching the Astros and the Braves, being from Louisiana. So I love all of it. Um, I am also a huge Rage Occasions football and New Orleans Saints fan. So baseball first, but football is a close second. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. I played Division three baseball in college, and we didn't have many fans. So I wish we had had a Jackie Russo or two, because I don't remember uh, too much fanfare, but maybe I'm just not, I was in the wrong part of the country. Well, you know, my son plays Division Three baseball, um, and so we go to all their games, and there's about 100, maybe 150 of us. It's a small, intimate yeah, gathering. exactly. Well, I think the most I ever got in college was like 3,000, which felt like I was in Yankee Stadium. But it's funny, because then you go to Yankee Stadium, and it's like 60,000, or then you go to Michigan football, and it's like 100,000, you're like, this is, 3,000 wasn't that many. Uh yeah, it, it's uh, it's funny. So I know there's so many places we could start. Um, as a person who's done family business, I work with my wife now. I've worked for my dad. I've worked with my uncle. Like I've always been fascinated by the concept of working with people close to you. So I thought a question I'd love to start with um, is you can share some context too, is what's it like to run a business with your husband? Well, there's pros and cons. Um, I would tell you that running a business together has probably kept us married. And has also made sure that the life insurance policy is fully up to date. You know, it goes both ways. Um, That wasn't the original intention. He worked for one agency and I worked for another uh, when we met. And then realizing the work we had done on the West Coast when I was in L.A. and he was in Seattle was very different than what was being done in Louisiana and the South at the time. And so we knew we had an opportunity to fill a void. And so we started an agency together and that was 2001. And so far, still um, married and still working together. And so 2001 would have been right after the first tech crash. Yeah. Correct. And then you've had, obviously, 2008. You've had COVID. <laughs> Which changed the industry a little bit. Uh, and then you have to realize, also, we're in Louisiana, so every oil and gas um, rise and fall greatly impacts any local or statewide regional clients that we might have. Then the housing crisis, financial crisis, tech crisis affects all of our national clients. And then COVID affected all of our international clients. So we've seen some things in our 21 years. Now, does one of them stand out as harder than any other? Are they all kind of similarly grouped in your mind? Two, um, 9-11, which happened six months after we opened our doors, uh, one month after Michael quit his Mm full-time job. And so in my mind, we were both unemployed at that point. And most of our clients were local and they were either hospitality based 
or retail based. And the first things that ended after 9-11 were transportation and hospitality and retail. So um, everything shut down. We had four clients go out of business. Um, we saw the rest of them basically completely eliminate or drastically cut their budgets. And um, I didn't think we'd make it till Christmas. Wow. And that's how you started. Right. I mean, we had a one and a half, well, almost two-year-old um, and a six-month-old and a, a six-month-old business. And it was terrifying. We had our first two employees that we had just hired. And we spent, like the rest of the world, you know, um, 24 hours a day for at least a week just watching TV and reading emails as clients canceled contracts. So how did you get out of that? Um, worked harder. I mean, I, that's all I know how to do. I, I hit the ground running and found new clients, uh, realized that we need more diversification. We couldn't just stay rooted in one business or the other, uh, we need, and not one geography. And so we spent years making sure we, um, no one client was more than 15% of our total revenue. And, and now it's down to about 5% that no one geography impacted us because of oil and gas. We learned that lesson and uh, no one industry. It was really important to us to make sure we were spread out. And we realized that not being all healthcare or all financial really kept us sharp. Uh, we became industry agnostic and were the better for it. Because every time we take a new client, we learn a new industry, we conquer a new territory, we become smarter. And the ideas we generate cross-pollinate to other companies, clients, industries. Yeah, it's such an interesting insight. I, we're, the, we're the same way in that sense of we, we don't focus on any one specific vertical, which people think is odd. Uh, but I view it as you'd want, you don't want me to be only doing what, you know, your industry does because I'm not going to fresh ideas. And you also, as an agency, you run into too much competitive overlap. Right. And you become too immersed in the jargon. If I know banking as well as my banking clients, then I start to speak like a banker. And how do I then serve as a translator to the customer who doesn't speak bank talk? Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So a question I had off of that is when you fought for your life on one of these businesses, like your inception was that way. It's, I mean, your family, like your kids grew up on the office floor. You were both doing it. How much does that contribute to how committed you are to it today? Like, I'm sure you never forget those moments. Oh, absolutely. I mean, talk about skin in the game, you know, um, and this is our livelihood, but it's also our passion and in some ways our mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we talk all the time about the work we do here. We're not curing cancer. We're not actually saving lives. There are much more important pieces of work being done in other places, but we have a place and we know that we're helping businesses stay alive. And, uh, you know, nothing proved that to me more than the pandemic. Um, getting through COVID and helping all of our clients get through that was the second scariest and most rewarding time after 9-11. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting how crisis is often this catalyst of values and purpose and passion. And I've noticed that even in what's going on right now overseas is that it's tragic and terrible, but it's amazing how in any time there's kind of darkness, the, the light shines and you see this the catalyst of certain people and leaders and values come out of the hardest things. It sounds like that's been your experience. So when you guys, I'm so curious because me and my wife are still, we've only been married a little over a year. So we're still trying to figure out, because I had the business, she kind of gradually got into it once we got married. Do, how do you guys find the balance between, you have business, you have parenting, which both sound incredibly stressful and complicated to talk about. And then you have like other fun, safe topics. How on earth do you guys not talk about the two hard ones all day? We talk about the two hard ones yeah. all day. 
our kids know more about logos and branding than most people who work in the industry and they're sick of it. They call dinner timeouts all the time because we'll start talking about work, but we love what we do. So it is fun that we have a passion for it. But as the last kid leaves the nest this year, which is crazy to me to think that, you know, we've raised four humans and this one business. So five babies in the exact same amount of time. We had four kids in the first four years of our marriage. Um, and so we know we have to have other interests and passions outside of work so that we don't just bore ourselves to death and everyone around us. Yeah, it's very funny. I, I, my wife was a dental hygienist. She's quickly, I don't, we're not really an agency in the traditional sense, but she's quickly learned at least the outbound agency speak, uh, like you said, because it is our life. So another question I had for you is, it's really impressed me how you, seeing your portfolio and learning about the business, you guys bring what I would consider kind of top grade quality, like the the people you have working for you, the presentations, the clients, but the prices you're charging, in my experience, are sometimes like 20% of what you might see from like a New York City agency doing no better a quality of work. So my question for you is as an entrepreneur, how have you built a business model that allows that? Like what's the secret? Well, we've done a couple of things really differently. Um, from a pricing perspective, we don't charge hourly. We charge by the project. So that's vastly different than 98% of the agencies out there. And it allows us to get the money stuff negotiated, settled, done, off the table. Now we can just go to work. So that was a big thing for us. Um, we don't pay New York rent. So we are able to save some money in the fact that we live in a very low cost of living place because we love this place. We love the food. We love the family. We love the festivals. We love the um, sports. We love everything. And most importantly, though, we knew from our work before this agency how important it was to really invest in research. And so having an in-house research team and utilizing all the third-party data that's super expensive allows us to provide that high quality, high caliber um, work and results and, and knowledge and insight at a mid-size agency price. And it wins. I, I don't need a beach house, although I'm not going to turn one down if it appears in the next few years. Michael doesn't need a big camp or ranch. You know, we provide for our family. We've made sure that all four of our kids are going to get through college without debt. And we have a retirement that we're looking forward to. So to me, Everything else is excess. And so we don't need excess. We reinvest back into the company. We make sure, um, you know, we've had a $15 hour minimum wage here forever um, for our part-time entry-level people. And we make sure everybody else is not only paid um, a very handsome salary, higher than the average around here, and has um, a nice piece of um, whatever profit we're making. So that way everybody's got skin mm -hmm. in the game. It's, and I love this story you told me because this is really the first time I really got to know your business was during COVID. You gave a speech, and I can uh, always edit this out if uh, later if you tell me to. But no, no, I'm good. You with basically it. put your kids' college fund in play to keep everyone's jobs. Which I don't know if you can speak to that, but that was where I was like, "Holy cow! Okay. This person is someone I need to know." <laughs> well, you know, it, it came out of our experience from 9/11 and all the other ups and downs our industry has been through. Uh, before we got smart, you know, we lost a client that was half of our revenue with no notice. And so we've always learned from the past, right? And so I knew a couple of things heading into COVID. I knew that I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew we were going to have to be prepared for anything. Um, I knew that no crisis only lasts for two weeks. So I felt certain it was going to be a much longer haul than that. 
And I knew that my team was going to be scared because we were scared. And so, you know, it hit Louisiana really middle of March and it was March 13th that things started to shut down. And so March 16th was a Monday and we had a team meeting like we do every Monday. And I had already had a long conversation with Michael over the weekend. We had done some planning. And so what we shared with the team was that our clients were going to be just as scared, if not more scared than us. And so we needed to accomplish a few things. One, we need to keep every client open. And that was going to be hard because some of them, we had these large regional fine dining restaurant client. That's a four hour meal that isn't really to go. And so we knew we'd have to make some adjustments and help our clients pivot. So if we could help our clients stay in business, then they would be forever indebted to us. We would be true strategic partners, which we say we are, and we would then be able to continue to, to thrive. And so we told our team, no matter what happened, they would have payroll, um, no matter what, for months, covered. So if it took our college kids' investment, we could recoup that somewhere down the line later. If it took dipping into our home equity line or into our own retirement, it didn't matter. What mattered was that our team got paid so they could keep our clients running. And it worked. We didn't lose a client, not good. Um, Some of our clients even grew and expanded um, and found new ways through our guidance and assistance to pivot. And um, we gained clients during 20 and 21. Um, And we're positioned now for 22 to be the best year we've ever had in our history. Now, when you say you gained new revenue streams for those clients, is that like a restaurant, like getting them on like online ordering? Like what are some of those examples? We did a couple of different things. So the fine dining, um, we created family meals. And so you could swing by and get um, curbside to go, family um, trays of lasagna. It's an Italian restaurant uh, in multiple locations. And so we we standardized the menu across the board. Everybody's on the same page. We did um, meal planning and meal prep with them that allowed for half the kitchen staff so they could spread out. And uh, it was all hands on deck. Uh, the servers still had jobs because they were taking online orders. They were helping to package an expo. Um, they were running curb. So they didn't fire anybody or lay off anybody and they never closed their doors. But yeah, we pivoted to curbside dining. We pivoted to these family dinners. We pivoted to picnic meals. Uh, we pivoted to um, recipes you could make at home, uh, ingredient kits you could buy, anything and everything to keep building the client's brand. And people saw them as this, you know, relief. You could swing by on the way home from work, pick up your dinner, get home. And it was great. It was tasty. Um, and it was comforting. It was, it was home cooking, uh, that people didn't have to make themselves. And this is especially at a time when a lot of grocery stores were out of items. And so it allowed them not to have to worry about where to go to get things to make dinner. They could just pick it up. And it was just, it was, it was a huge transition for them, but all of those pandemic projects, I feel like made everybody feel like they were helping. They were part of the solution. And it's such an important distinction is if, if people feel like a victim, their experience of crises is miserable. If they feel empowered that they're making a difference, uh, their experience isn't. And there's so much data, I mean, certainly in world history where people have talked about that, where I think you've done a great job in that case, crystallizing, let's go make a difference because crises are opportunities um, as hard as they are. So another question that I have for you uh, along the same lines is I've only been doing this for four years. So about a fifth of the time that you have. But there is just a stress that comes with business ownership at a baseline. There's a stress that comes with doing it with your spouse. There's another stress that comes with being in client service. 
There's another stress that comes with being in performance marketing. There's another stress that comes with being in cyclical industries. And as you kind of layer this all together, uh, it's a lot to process when you step back and think how much is riding on you for every brand Russo badged employee, how many clients are relying on you. So that weight, I have certainly felt at times of holy cow. Like I've found myself reading like Winston Churchill to try to figure out like how did people deal with lots of stress? Um, not that my life is as hard as his was, but I'm curious, what has been your personal strategy to deal with that over you know, a pretty long, successful career now as an agency owner? Right. Um, I think part of it is stupidity. Uh, I don't know what I don't know. And I think that we've been able to uh, be very fortunate and very blessed um, I have a very strong faith. Um, I do think that if I keep doing the right thing every day, then the right things will happen. And uh, I believe that it has a lot to do with good ethics. Uh, when you treat people the right way, I think that comes back to you. And um, going above and beyond, you know, I, I feel like we have a, a true mission here. And so we make sure we support nonprofits. Uh, we give work away to startups. We, we really help every chance that we can. And then in terms of just de-stressing, I enjoy the heck out of my family. Um, we have family dinners. Uh, when the kids lived at home, it was every night. Now that they're away at college, it's every Sunday for the ones who are within driving distance. Um, you know, we get up to see Jackson play baseball. I go to a lot of baseball games, which is very de-stressing for me. I, um, I keep a to-do list that I feel successful in checking off every day, which is very de-stressful. When I don't know what I have to do, I feel stressed out. When I know exactly what I have to do, then it's very manageable and achievable. Um, we've done this through two massive home remodels, one in O2 and one we're just finishing right now. And so add to all the stress you just talked about, add having your house in complete disarray and lots of work people in there every day and dust and not having a bed or bedroom for four months. And that really is the topper on the cake. You know, Michael said yesterday, he's like, I'm done, get them out. So I'm like, okay, happy spouse, happy house. Work people, it is time to go. We are finished. Whatever you got to do to wrap it up, wrap it up. And so it's about knowing when I need more or he needs more or the kids need more and making sure that we're fulfilling that. I travel a lot. I enjoy travel. Um, it's just, I think, finding ways to relieve the stress in whatever it is. If it's reading, if it's tennis, if it's golf, um, I try to make sure it's not gambling or shopping <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> things that can get out of hand. Um but, you know, I also live a pretty clean life. I, I only drink water. I don't have coffee or tea or soda or alcohol. Um, I eat fairly healthy for the most part, not counting concession stands at baseball games. Uh, and so I think that helps, too. I think that if I was not eating well or not sleeping well, then I would have a lot more stress during my day. And it's so interesting, to your point, build habits that are controllable because there's going to be things like recessions you can't control, but drinking water versus soda or not gambling, those are things you can control right. that – kind of sets you up better for what you can't. Now, I'm curious to go into sort of your sweet spot for a minute on branding. Uh, this is a sure. topic that intimidates, I'd say, 90% of us entrepreneurs who don't do what you do. How do you just think about branding at a high level for someone who maybe is just trying to start to understand it? How would you break down the concept of it? Well, for us, it always starts with the definition from Marty Neumeyer's book, The Brand Gap. And um, I'm going to paraphrase here, but it's the emotional connection. That's the brand between people and a company or their products and services. 
And so when we use that definition, I think it's pretty easy. It's just how people feel about you. And so all of a sudden, that's where it becomes now like, oh, so when you can provide Chick-fil-A level service, people expect that from you. But as long as you can exceed, well, maintain or exceed that expectation, then people will continue to feel good about you. Um, If you tell them you are high end, fill in the blank here, and then they experience your website, your location, your products or your services, and it doesn't feel high end to them, then you're going to have a break in that brand. Mm -hmm. And so really it's about making sure you know who you are. You authentically put that out to the right people, you know, the people who need your product or service, um, the people who see high end the same way you do or see fair price or value. You know, those are very vague things. Uh, My favorite scene um, from Elf, is when he's going around congratulating people on having the best coffee. That is somebody who doesn't understand branding. Um, because if those coffee places really were the best, I mean, by whose definition? What if you like chicory? What if you like it smarter, uh, sweeter? What if you like it um, darker roast, lighter roast, with cream, with sugar? So it, you can't really be the best. So it's about taking away those false promises and really being authentic and, most importantly, knowing who those target audience members are, because it's not everybody. And, and you ra- raised a great point about best. One of the things I've noticed working with not as many clients as you, but call it hundreds the last few years, is everyone thinks they have the best product. But what I've noticed is in this world we live in of s- kind of superfluous information, like anyone can, uh, you really do have relative commoditization. People are hiring from the same places, they're using the same tools and I've noticed for us, like you, as a, a business that's really tried to incorporate faith and positivity and donate, like the same thing, like just be a business that really shines in the way it exists, that I think we've actually managed to maybe build relationships where it wasn't that we always had something other people couldn't do. It's that they wanted to be part of that brand journey, like you're saying. And I'm curious, is that a correct assumption that more and more brand is overtaking product differentiation as the reason you win or lose? A hundred percent. And it's actually been that way for a little while. I think everybody's just now realizing it. The internet has done a couple of things. Internet and digital transformation has done two things. One, it's made the whole world very, very small. I can hire people, really talented people from Seattle, New York, LA, Dallas, Miami, Chicago, and still live in Lafayette. And so all of a sudden, I'm not limited by the talent in my neighborhood. I can have talent from anywhere doing anything. So you have commoditization. Um, We also have the ability for everybody to buy a Mac computer and hang up a shingle and say, I'm a designer. I'm a digital agency. I'm a social media marketer. I'm in a a group with about 50,000 women. Literally, I think there's 49,000. And it's women in marketing is the group. The number of people in there every day that say, I just got hired to be a social media agency for this company. Where do y'all think I should start? And I'm thinking, that's a problem for my industry. Mm -hmm. Um, But that means I have to work that much harder to establish good best practices, uh, good results, good processes, um, and differentiate myself from those people. Uh, who are solo practitioners and not experienced or knowledgeable or have the uh, width and depth. You know, 
we can deliver uh, Madison Avenue quality work in half the time for half the price. But that doesn't mean we're doing $500 logos and using crowdsourcing and uh, clip art like some of the um, solo practitioners are. There's a sweet spot in the middle and you've got to find your sweet spot. And when you can authentically um, define the promise that you make to people and deliver on that promise every day, then you're going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. I love uh, I love that talk about branding slogan. Half the price of Madison Avenue, half the time is a. Uh, it certainly shows that, uh, as you'd say, razor cutting through the noise. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so, so I'm also curious to your point in the world of marketing. I've seen this as well. Like as you know, I have a little I call it side hustle where for the customers I get really close to, I like to uh, write LinkedIn posts. And I've noticed whenever I talk about this, there's people who really understand LinkedIn personal branding as sharing your interesting insights as a person and then, you know, putting up HBR articles all day that no one engages with. And I've noticed, like you right. said, so when people say we've got that covered, it's like, no, you're actually like doing something that doesn't work. And I have something that would work. Do you ever get frustrated when you're having conversations you must because i feel like you've got an innovative offering we're like blue in the face like no you don't understand like this is so revolutionary the way brand russo does it and have you had success you know in those conversations persistently trying to convince people or is it one of these things like you know gary vaynerchuk would say don't sell the unsellable some people are just never going to get it i think some people are never going to get it um when we talk about the right people I don't mean that by demographics. I mean that by psychographics. There are some people who are aligned with you. They don't have your knowledge. They don't have your experience. They don't have your abilities, but they think the way you th that you think. Um, they see the world the way you see the world. They're just your people. They're people that you get along with, that you feel good about. And when you find those people, those are your people. And so that is when you need to say, you're mine and you're mine forever. And we have clients that we've had for over a decade, sometimes decade and a half, because they get us, they trust us, they um, know us, they, they know our faults, they know our strengths, and they know that we complement a deficit that they have and we're a good partnership together. That Those are my people, those are my clients, those are the people that I will um, get through a pandemic for, use my kids' college funds to continue to help them stay afloat, do whatever I have to do, because I'm all in on them because they're all in on us. We know within 10 minutes if somebody's going to be a good client or not. So we take a ton of meetings, 30-minute meetings, quick assessment, and either we're on the same page about the world or we're not. And I think that with the 7 billion people in the world today, I, I don't need but a tenth of a tenth of a percent of those to be a very successful person. So I'll stop trying to get everybody. And I'm just trying to find mine. I love that. It's so similar to what Richard Branson says. Richard Branson, I think someone pulled him aside and said, you know, you're only ever going to get 2% of the aviation market in England. And he looked at them, 2% of the aviation market will make me a hugely successful business. And there's so much wisdom in a service business. What you're saying, in my experience, is you have to find people you love serving, who you really care about. Because if you pollute that pool of people with people who you don't think are ethical, who you don't who aren't kind to your team, who it starts to kind of slightly taint your perspective in serving the really great ones. And if you're, if you view it like a water glass and you're only going to let clean water in the glass, like you said, 
and anyone on like I I ha, I don't know that's probably the perfect analogy, but I've seen the exact same thing. It makes an incredible difference in the in the culture of your company, because really the culture of your employee experience becomes who you're serving, because they're spending more exactly. time with the client than they are with you. <coughs> exactly. I mean, you think back to Apple from when Steve Jobs first started at the company, um, left for a little while, and then came back to the company. During that framework, uh, before the iPhone was invented, when they were living on Macs, um, they had 3% market share. They were the most expensive computer. They were not adaptable. You could not build it the way you wanted to build it. You couldn't take it apart and add plugins like you could a PC. You bought it, that was it, that was the deal, and you paid a lot for it, and three years later, you were doing it again. And people lined up to buy them lined up to buy them. You look at what's happening with Tesla. They have a very small percent of the market and they only make four cars, four. That's it. Two sedans, two SUVs, period. People have waiting lists for a year on them. So it's not about quantity. It's about quality. Mm -hmm. And to your point, quality comes from focus because you can't be everything. And I noticed that the times that you guys have helped us, you really were able to teach us at Veth Group about our own brand. Like you're not going to be 15 different things. And that's the mistake people make is they want to be a buffet. And it's like, you've got to kind of win your, like you said, best coffee in Philadelphia is vague. We're going to build a, there's <laughs> not going to be a place you meet kinder customers than here is attainable. Right. Or is best coffee right. in Philadelphia? Yes. Yeah. So, so final question. I uh, have two. So, one is: I know you've written a book. Um, I know you constantly have great ideas. If you were put on a desert island, or if you had to give, you know, a twenty-year-old who wants to start an agency one book, what would the book be? I'm obviously not allowed to suggest my own. Um, so, I think it would be. Uh, the Brand Gap by Marty Newmeyer, because I just think that's the Bible when it comes to branding. Um, I think if you're stuck on figuring out how to tell a story, it would be Story Brand by Donald Miller. And I think if you're stuck figuring out who to talk to, then it would probably be uh, Tribes by Seth Godin. Great suggestions. I've also read Business Made Simple by Donald Miller. I don't know if you've read that one. It oh, has been really helpful. That's a great one. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I'll, I'll add to that then e-myth entrepreneur for anybody who's working in their business every day instead of working on it. It's a really nice guide on how to stop being the day-to-day -day, uh, person and really elevate yourself to the CEO role of your own company. Which to your point uh, matters because someone's got to be thinking about brand, purpose, passion, uh, and you can't do that if you're two in the trenches. So last question, right. uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, if they want to interview on their podcast, if they want to work with Brand Russo, if they want to work for you, where's the best way to do that? I know there's so many platforms. Well, I mean, easy email, Jackie at brandrusso.com. Um, but I do check Twitter and Instagram and Facebook pretty steady there. And I am at Jackie Russo and all of those Jackie spelled J A C I R U S S O. Um, the great thing about having a misspelled first name is I've never had trouble getting my username on every platform and LinkedIn as well. Probably would be an okay place. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Sorry. Yes, of course. Of course. Probably Pinterest too. I mean, you name it. I've got a handle there. Awesome. Well, Thank you very much for coming on our show. I look forward to having you back and certainly uh, appreciate yeah, everything you've done for our business. So thank you. No, thank you for everything you've done for our business. Uh, you're helping us keep growing and we appreciate it. Our pleasure. We'll talk soon.
Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.